0: His disciples remembered that it it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You can have a seat. Or stay standing. Your preference. If you would uh, flip or tap your way on over to Exodus chapter forty, and on your way there, uh, I have a little story. It might even just be like a little bit of a confession. I don't, it's not, this isn't like a gross confession or something like that. But uh, in college, uh, I liked to dance. Just, just imagine. I'm not. I'm not talking like ballroom dancing or twerking or anything like that. Um, you see, when I was in undergrad, there was this thing that was bubbling up to the surface of EDM, which stands for Electronic Dance Music, and it was called dubstep. If you know, you know. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, oh, goodness. See, what would happen in a dubstep song is it would slowly build. And it would build some more. It would build some more. You, you could, it would build a little bit more. And then this deep, wobbly bass would drop. And the room would go crazy. I don't know if you could even call it dancing, but uh, it's, yes, something, something was happening there with your body, some sort of convulsion. Uh, Anyways, Exodus 40 is where the beat drops. Okay, come on now. See, uh, but it's actually not where the song starts. Because 400 years of bondage preceded this song, And there is bondage in Egypt. If you know the Exodus account, what you know is that the people of Israel begin to cry out, and Yahweh hears their cry, and he responds to their cry. And then Moses, this unlikely character who is an Israelite, but uh, had this moment where he received a lot of privilege, and then he killed a guy and went into exile. That's a whole thing. Uh, But nevertheless, God sends Moses to deliver his people from their bondage and slavery in Egypt. The song is building. But there's this tyrant king, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh will not release the people. There's the famous line that Moses, if, you know, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt, you know the line. Uh, Let my people go is what Moses declares on behalf of Yahweh. And Pharaoh says, no, he doesn't even know who Yahweh is. And then a showdown of sorts ensues. And one after another, Yahweh is declared to be the one true creator God over and against the gods and idols of Egypt. And after a series, after after all those defeats in Exodus chapter 14, the people are finally released and God delivers them through the chaos waters of the Red Sea. They sing a song. And if you didn't know any better, that might be the moment that you think the beat is going to drop, but it doesn't. The song continues to build because they come through, they celebrate the people, they pledge their allegiance to Yahweh, the one who delivers them. But then in fear, they abandon God. They renege on their commitment. This is the famous golden calf incident. And to continue with this rather awkward little metaphor, at this point, God wants to start a new track. He's like, no, let's just ditch that thing. And Moses, um, you're going to be my DJ and we're going to just have this whole thing start with you again. Just get rid of that. But Moses intervenes. He actually is this intercessor. He stands in the place. He's even willing to allow his life to become nothing so that the people of Israel might continue because he says, your name is on the line. And so depending on how you read that, God either relents, repents, or changes mind, but nevertheless, God responds and resolves to be with the people and even to dwell in their presence. Just let that sink in. And then when we get to the end of Exodus, Exodus chapter 40, after God has described how he will dwell among his people. We see that God's desire to be there actually comes to its fulfillment. This is what we read in Exodus chapter 40. You can scroll down or flip over to verses 33 and 34. This is what we get in verse 33. Then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard and so uh, Moses finished the work. This is where the beat drops. Verse 34, check this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled their tabernacle. All of the efforts, all of the waiting, all of the anticipation gave way and this, wait for it, this is transformed into that's the, that's the wobbly base like so god's personal presence comes and what was previously calfskin and wood and some sort of like golden lampstands kind of no 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 the whole thing is transformed and god's personal presence comes and fills the space it's god's space heaven and human space earth come together it is a signpost pointing forward to the ultimate restoration of all, all things and there it is and there's a problem because if, if you're looking in your Bibles, you know that Exodus isn't over yet. In verse 35, we read this. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's like the beat drops, God's personal presence comes, fills the space, and then the song just ends. If you would have seen College Kyle at so-called dance party, and the beat dropped, and then the music cut off, you would have seen some befuddled faces, and mine would have been one of them. Like, what? What do you mean, like, the temple, it's, the, the, the tabernacle's filled, but now Moses can't go in? Like, why is it that when God's presence fills the tabernacle, no one, not even Moses, who just a little bit ago was meeting with God face to face, why is it that even Moses is unable to enter the tent? Well, in in a single word, uh, holiness. You see, the calf incident, what it did is it ruptured trust between Israel and the one true God. It was a rupture that left Moses unable to enter the tent because Moses was like a representative to the people. So when Moses would go up, it would be as though all of that relational rupture was there. But that's not the end. Because God offers a response to the end of Exodus in Leviticus 1. This is one of the most beautiful, it's called a literary seam. It's one of the most beautiful transitions to my mind in the scriptures. It's from Exodus to Leviticus 1. Just look at this opening line. And the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So at one point, Moses is unable to enter, but God, from that place, calls out to Moses. And what you get there on in Leviticus is God's response to repair communion. Because God doesn't want to just be like, here I am, but you can't touch me. No, God actually wants to move toward the people and then make a way for those people to come to God. And that repair has a real cost. Have you ever wondered, like, why all the blood? I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Leviticus is like this priestly tech manual and it walks through all of these offerings and sacrifices. Why all the blood? Why is it that on one day a year, there's only one dude, the high priest can go into what's called the holies of holies where the ark is God's like portable throne. Why is it that he goes in and he like sprinkles some blood, has a little rope tied around his foot and then like is deathly afraid to go? Why only one guy one time a year? What is with that? Holiness. Holiness. See God's presence, similar to that of the sun. It is good and beautiful and glorious. We praise God that indeed the sun has shone in the state of Iowa. And yet, what we know is that in a in a short few months, um, if if I go outside and I like do not come into the presence of the sun on the sun's terms, I will get what. I'll get burned. So the sun is good and beautiful and glorious, and it is at the same time worthy of respecting. There's a type of holiness there. Leviticus is God's response to repair communion too, and that repair, it has a real cost. It's an invitation to come to God on his own terms, and this might sound kind of abstract and churchy. And You're like, well, I am at church, so go with it. Okay, I will. It's actually more intuitive than you might think. Just consider our cultural moment. Right now, there is a high cultural value for attending to people, for coming to people uh, according to their unique stories. It's, it's why we have pronouns in our social media handles and things like I don't know if they're in the handles, whatever. The, I don't do the social media, so like whatever the place is, we honor people in that way. We see evidence of it with that and sensitivity to cultural references and heritage. In other words, we have rearranged our speech patterns and our social practices to honor another's story. Even if at some fundamental level you have a disagreement there, there's still a movement as a follower of Jesus to say, You bear the image of God, I will honor you in this way. But when it comes to God, we welcome him on our terms. Like the people of Israel before us, we prioritize our preferences and our values and our timetables and assume that God will accommodate us, will accommodate our whims and our intentions without regard for his will. And might I just suggest, if there is a being in the universe who we would do well to come on their terms, perhaps it is the creator God, the one whom the psalmists declare, this is the one from whom all blessings flow, this is the king of glory that the psalmists will say, let, let him come in. Perhaps we would do well to come to God on his own terms. Just, just think what it might look like to do that. Like, what if we welcomed God on his terms rather than our own? And that question is, in some sense, the tension of the whole Hebrew Bible. It's the backdrop of our teaching text today, what it looks like to come to God on his terms rather than our own. And when we meet Jesus in John chapter 2, there is no longer a tent. The tent has been transformed. Not God's desire, but God stooping down, accommodating (laughs) David, but David can't do it, so his son. like There's no longer a tent when we meet Jesus in John 2. There's a temple, but it's not even the OG temple that Solomon built, that God's presence filled. No, that one is destroyed. Instead, it is this second temple. It's this temple that Herod built to impress the Roman authorities, and it's there that you see all sorts of religious activity, but it is absent of the divine presence. That is until Jesus shows up. And so with all of that in mind, let's head back to our teaching text in verse 13. This is John chapter 2, verse 13, and, and we're just going to work our way through bit by bit. John 2, verse 13 reads like this, When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And just as, as like a little aside here, a little Bible nerdery, this passage is set up like a sandwich. So if you're hungry for the word, this, oh, this is Bible jokes. They're just going to keep flowing out. Okay, verses 13 and 23, they mirror one another. There's talk about the Passover, and then what you're going to see is there's going to be the disciples remembering things about what Jesus had said. And then it's moving towards the whole center point of this passage, verse 19, Jesus' declaration about who he is. This uh, arrangement is called a chiasm, uh, but you don't have to remember that. But this is like a sandwich, and the meat is Jesus' claim. And so have that in mind. As we work our way through. Verse 13, John sets the stage with arguably one of the most significant festivals in Jewish life and practice. It's the Passover. It actually is the foundation story in Exodus. It's God's sending a way for the people to move through from death to life. And like most of Israel's festivals, God invited the people to memorialize his deliverance in a meal. I just When I come to the scriptures, it's so... Like, that's just so ordinary. God is consistently transforming the ordinary things into the most beautiful and miraculous things. A meal is tactile. It's tangible. It's instructive. It's something you take into your body for, yes, sustenance and energy and growth, but God then imbues. He puts in this ordinary thing something miraculous. And in turn, festival meals, they served as a concrete way to regularly participate in praise and thanksgiving Remembrance and ultimately repentance, like a fresh turning to God on God's own terms. And ideally, through years of practices, these regular turning to God through these festivals, the people would remember who they are, that they would become a type of grateful and trusting community that shares in God's goodness because they've received God's goodness and then they extend it to their neighbor in kind. The festivals, in other words, were designed to help the people of Israel become who they already are, holy, to be a people marked by God's love. But that's the ideal of the festival, and reality is a little bit different than the ideal. Do you know idealists, when they meet reality, if they don't adjust, can easily become cynics? Just spoken as an idealist. Um, We encounter the reality in verse 14, in fact, of our text. In the temple courts, Jesus found people selling cattle and sheep. Pay attention to that little arrangement there, cattle and sheep. And doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he, this is the Lord Jesus, uh, made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts. Both sheep and cattle he scattered. "'the coins of the money changers "'and overturned their tables. "'And to those who sold doves, "'he said, get these out of here. "'Stop turning my father's house into a market.'" And now this, uh, this passage itself, it's just like dripping with significance, and so I don't think we can wring out all the meaning of this passage here, so I just want to zone in here on a few things. If you've heard me teach on this scene before, like in the Gospel according to Mark, then you probably recall that the main issue here is not commercialization, it's not necessarily even consumerism. I, I, I think that if we were to take and make this passage about commercialization and consumerism, that would be mapping our idols onto Jesus's day. But I don't, I don't think that's actually the main thing. I could also be wrong about that. But I have a good reason why I don't think that's a thing. Because Passover is taking place. Passover is a pilgrimage festival. And what that means is if I'm coming down to Jerusalem, or I guess topographically you'd say I'd be going up to Jerusalem from the Galilee, I'm not going to bring lamby with me to the sacrifice at Passover. No, instead I'm going to bring currency. I'm going to go into a place where I can then purchase lamby and then bring lamby to the priest to slaughter it. Or a dove. Either way, the commerce is expected The exchange of money is expected because by this point, Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, has moved all of the economic interests and the commercial interests related to the temple into the temple's outer courts. It actually looks like this. This is a little rendition here. So that red-roofed building, that's known as Solomon's porch or Solomon's portico, and Caiaphas would have moved all of the needs of the temple into that space. So that would be just bustling, clamoring with life and people calling out. So certainly there's economic inflections here. And those outer courts there are also where Gentile or God-fearing non-Jews would worship. So there's some sort of ethnic and racial dynamic at play. But for Jesus, it goes beyond that. Because when Jesus rolls up into that red roof section, he finds people selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at the tables exchanging money. You see, Jesus is here to make a claim because for Caiaphas to move all of that commerce into that space is to think that he has the authority in that space. But Jesus is is here to to shift the conversation because certainly financial interests are there and they're sketchy, like Caiaphas lined his pockets with that move. The temple treasury was um, just bolstered in that move, but... But Jesus' temple stunt, it undercuts more than economic exploitation, and we see it in the question from the leaders in verse 18. Scan down there with me. The the leaders there, John calls the Jews. It's likely these are the Judeans, or the, the ones who are ruling over the temple. Verse 18, they ask this question, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? So apparently, the thing beneath the thing What Jesus' stunt provokes is a question of who actually has the authority. The reason for Jesus' temple stunt is to show who has the authority. And the authority today is kind of like a swear word. It's not really like, we don't really want to talk about power dynamics, although we're constantly talking about power dynamics, but that is exactly what's taking place in this passage. Jesus, in like this provocative, prophetic display, it's almost like biblical theater, he is claiming that he has the authority. Why else would those who are attending to this event ask him, what can you show us to prove your authority? And if this sounds like a stretch, I want you to draw to mind those two little, that little turn of phrase from our passage, the sheep and the cattle. See, John is making this pretty clear. Jesus made whips. This is verse 15, a whip out of cords and drove from the temple courts both sheep and cattle. So, so let's just uh, slow down for a second and talk about music again. The festival music, the EDM of Israel Palestine, you could say, is the Psalter. By the way, that is a great Bible joke. Um, okay, we're just gonna keep going here. I like I wrote that. and I'm like, yes, come on. Okay. Uh, People would sing and they would remember and they would reenact God's salvation through these songs. And one such song on the lips of the people during Passover is Psalm 8. Do you have any guess what we're going to encounter in Psalm 8? Okay, let me tell you. Starting in verse 4, this is what we read. What What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over all the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and cattle and also beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Did you hear it? All things have been put under Jesus' authority. He has dominion over those works, and he makes that claim and John helps us see that, that is driven out. And two times John repeats it, all sheep and cattle. Jesus comes into the temple, what he just called his father's house in verse 16, and then he starts acting like he is the one Psalm 8's talking about. Come on, Jesus. Get it. Like, like, Psalm 8 is Jesus' life script, and he comes in, and he's claiming to be the one with all authority. All things are under his feet, and the leaders there, they know it, and so they ask it to prove himself. Because that stunt is, it's a provocative act. And do you remember what Jesus says? This is the meat of the passage. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. John's going to go on right thereafter to tell us that they think Jesus is talking about the temple that's right there, but also they don't know that it's Jesus is talking about his body. It's a reality that Jesus' disciples didn't even grasp until after the resurrection and perhaps you're wondering, okay, so like what's, what's going on here? Because this is a lot. So Jesus is coming in, and I thought he was just a little ornery in John's gospel, and he's upset about the commerce. But you're telling me Jesus is trying to make like this claim of authority, and he's doing so by enacting, like taking on Psalm 8 as his life script to be the one with all authority. Yes, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus is essentially saying, this is my space. And so let me just make this a little bit more clear. Let us draw uh, this back. Just go back to the beginning as we're thinking, like, what is the purpose of the tabernacle? What is the purpose of the temple? When we think about, like, God's glory coming in that space, perhaps what you think is, well, the temple is about, I don't know, justice, The the, the temple is about worship, or the temple is about God uniting with his people. It's kind of like yes to all of those things. But at the end of the day, God is the point. God is the point of the temple. The temple is nothing. The temple does not generate justice. The temple cannot unite itself to people. You cannot, wood and stone cannot even receive worship. So what is the point of the tabernacle or the temple? It is but a signpost pointing to the reality which is God's very presence among his people to restore communion and creation. That is what animates the temple. The temple we see in John 2, it is just another place full of religious activity. It is absent of divine presence until Jesus shows up and says, I actually have the authority. I'm the one to whom all this points. Jesus is the arrival. Jesus is actually where the beat drops. And the beautiful thing about John is he is front-loading his whole gospel to show us that everything that we might put our hope and anticipation in it can be found in Jesus, but it's all going to move toward this fateful moment where Jesus, who is the one with all authority, actually surrenders himself into the Father's care. Later in John's Gospel... Jesus will strive to make his identity, the one with authority, like abundantly clear. He'll say this in John 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Is, is this? Am I the only one in the room right now who's hearing that Jesus is saying that if you know me and you have experienced me, then you know the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's not just like a cute sign or a bumper sticker or something like the only memory verse in your life. Like No, Jesus is saying if you want to abide and remain with the Father, I am the way to do that. Jesus centers himself as the place of union and worship and justice. He is where heaven and earth overlap. It's not in religious performance. It's not in a liturgy. It's not in the work of justice. Although Jesus can be found in the margins and we can experience something like a gift of God's presence, like the Holy Spirit outpouring upon us, but that is not the same as Jesus himself. Jesus is that place where heaven and earth overlap. But, um, but folks, there's more. The author of Hebrews later in the New Testament, specifically in Hebrews 10, will tell us that Jesus was himself the perfect sacrifice and that he accomplished what the temple in Jerusalem never could. Do, do you remember what John the Baptist is, when he sees Jesus, do you remember what he's saying about him? Behold, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the... Why in the world are you calling Jesus a Lamb? Well, perhaps because Jesus is the one who indeed will cover over the people and make a way to move from death to life. This is how the author of Hebrews says it, picking up in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. If you recall at the end of the gospels, there's this moment where Jesus He gives up, he relinquishes his life into the care of the Father. And there's this earthquake and it tears the veil of the holies of holies. It's as though the temple system is so broken. Actually, yes, it's not even needed because now there is indeed a like the opening to God is wide open in Jesus. Verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that is Jesus, he's the one through his own blood. He's sprinkling, he's cleansing. In verse 22, the author says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who is promised is faithful. When I came to those words this morning, that, that, the, the, that little line from Hebrews wasn't in the thing. So Kate, thank you for adding that. Um, like, I don't know if it's one person or all y'all who need to hear again, Jesus is the one who is faithful. To every barrier that we erect, all the shame and the trauma, the willful disobedience, even the stuff that was done to us that we had no control over, Jesus' life declares that there is still a way. And it's not what we generate. It's actually his life. It's clinging to. After Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and the life, he'll go on to say, so remain in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches, just remain in me. Jesus' life declares that there is still a way. So let us remember his words, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus died to death so that we too might be able to look at death with the confidence of Jesus and say that life can come from even the darkest of places. In fact, the light has shown in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. That is the claim of those who are with Jesus. The New Testament is just going to litter all of this, like these little footholdings for us to stand firm and that we might be in Christ, that the new has come, the old has gone. And so the question that we must sit here with today is those who are trying to practice the way of Jesus is what stands in the way. Because the invitation is to participation with Jesus. Because the audacious claim laying in front of us this morning is that Jesus is the one with the authority, not you and not me. And I don't say that heavy-handedly. I actually say that as a gift to you. Because that means that you don't have to drum up the Father's affection because it's been lavished on you in the Son and is present to you in the Spirit. Jesus himself will say that no one took his life, but that he freely gave it as a ransom for many. See, perhaps Jesus is inviting you and me to recognize what the rulers could not, namely that he is holy and that we would do well to draw near to him, but that we might do well to draw near to him on his terms rather than our own. See, when the New Testament goes on to talk about us as the body of Christ or the bride of Christ, it talks about, we sang this, I'm getting ready, preparing myself as a bride for the bridegroom. And if that sounds weird and awkward, just sit with it. Just sit with it. Like, what what would it look like to prepare myself to go to Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God, to step into that, that holy space, and if this sounds churchy and abstract, I don't really care. Because if you go to the beach this summer and you're like, nah, I'm good, I don't need any sunblock. I'm mean, going to be like, well, you're probably stupid. <laughs> Especially if you've got the lily white skin. Like, you're, you're going to go into that space and you will get burned. So what does it look like for us to prepare ourselves to go in? Well, in some sense, it's to reckon with who we are and how we are. And the gift of Jesus is that he doesn't, like, with shame move toward us. He actually says, yes, I, I, like, I know that reality. You can relinquish. You can cast your anxieties on me. Because you are with me, I will be the one with whom you move into the Father's presence. We are always with Jesus. It's not like Jesus endorses us and then sends us off. No, he says, I will be with you now to the very end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So if you feel like this voice rising up within, a voice of forsakenness, that is not the spirit of Jesus. And in his name, we just say that is done. Because that forsaken voice has no place in the kingdom of God because that is where we are adopted into God's family in Jesus' name. Through Jesus' sacrifice and victory, he made a way for God not only to dwell with us, but in us. And what does the presence do? It makes it holy. It takes an ordinary thing like calf skins and a tent and it turns it into this miraculous space where God's grace and goodness is mediated to the rest of the world. Do you know in Acts chapter two, uh, there's this image that shows up. In Acts chapter two, the spirit of God is like, there's these people who are waiting in this upper room and God's spirit comes. Do you remember the image on top of the people's head? it's like flames of fire. Do you remember the image of in the wilderness? It's like the pillar of fire. God has come, his purifying presence has come to make us into we are, who we are in Christ, holy and beloved. Why? Because God wants to form us into his temple, a as Peter will say, like living stones as a dwelling place for God. According to the Bible scholar, Tim Gombas, the Jerusalem temple had become corrupt. It was no longer the place where God would be encountered, but now God has encountered, is encountered among those who are in Jesus, the new temple who gather in the spirit of Jesus. Church, God's ideal was never to be in a tent in the desert. In the words of the prophet Habakkuk, God's desire was that the whole earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory like the waters cover the sea. And if you're like, Kyle, I think you're getting a little excited. Maybe you need to calm down. Maybe you need to like calm up because God's desire is to cover the earth and the knowledge of his glory like the waters cover the sea. This is the beauty of God who wants to restore the places that feel dead into life through us, the church. When I think about that, I'm like, that is one audacious God because he knows. He knows, like, he saw me when the beat dropped. Like he, he knew like, oh, I'm rolling on Molly. Here we go again tonight. Like he knows the contents of my heart and he has taken that place of shame and he is transforming it now through his personal presence into something like a gift for a community. So do with you. Through your temperament, through your stage of life, through your personality. Through your circumstances, God is interested in making you and your life a holy place, a dwelling place for his personal presence, and not just for you. You are not the end of God's life in you. It's actually to move through you. Like, did you, did you know that you would be seated next to the person here today? Allison, did you know you'd be seated next to Tom? The spirit of the living God right there. I mean, could you just imagine if we saw the world with the wonder of God's perspective like, oh my goodness. This is the type of raw curiosity. I don't, I don't come by this naturally. I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old who see the, like, the wind blow and they're like, whoa. I was walking with Griffin in the East Village the other day and it was like when it was negative a billion out and we're walking by the flagpole over by the, whatever, the federal building or something, by Hilltop Tire and... He looks up at the flagpole and he goes, oh my gosh. Daddy, come look at this. Look at this, it's just blowing. I'm like, dude, let's go, I'm freezing. Like the, and he just stands there and then he, like, and he looks at the, the flagpole and he's like, look at all this corn. Oh, like the, the wonder of the glory of God in front of us. And then he looks at people, like he's sitting here this morning and somebody's walking by and he's just going. And that person stops and they're like, they kind of scrunched it. But could you, that's how God, he sees us. And there's invitations all around us to see one another and then to see that God is intent on moving toward us out of love. See, if we are the temple, then we would do, we would do well to remember that Jesus has invited us to come to him on his terms. I don't know what it is that stands in your way. This is like, historically, this is where um, I've encountered, like, like, um, Moments where the the preacher says something like, if it's sexual immorality, then relinquish that to God. If it's disobedience in this area, relinquish that to God. And in one sense, I want to echo that, but I can't presume to know the contents of your heart. But I know the one who does. And I know that it is His kindness that leads us to turn. And I know that there is grace, immeasurable grace for all of us. I know that His mercy is greater than our sin. And I know that His love will outrun us wherever we think we can get away. And I want to invite you to Him today. Not to me, not to a service, not to a song, but to respond to the living God who is willing to give Himself up in love for you and for me and not just us, but for Des Moines, for the region, and for the whole of the cosmos. (music) you <music>